politics, football, faith, and theology, you are listening to Pfft Podcast, and I'm your host, Daniel, joined today by two of my friends for the first time. Uh, I have I have two uh, friends on a podcast, um, Andrew Kapersky and Dom DiGiovanni. Andrew is a... Um, and Andrew, what, bo- both were friends of mine from Hillsdale College, and both... Uh, have now graduated uh, a little before I did, and I actually don't know where either of you guys are now. What what states do you live in? What do you do? <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll go first. Um, this is Andrew here. Um, thank you for having me Hi, on. Andrew. It's very gracious, by the way. I just want to say to have me on. Not quite a week hence since uh, your Colts uh, lost my supposedly tanking Dolphins. <laughs> so you are <laughs> right. You are a gentleman so, so I and a actually, scholar <laughs> to have me well, on. Well, <laughs> yes. So I waited until um, I could have some catharsis by watching the Colts beat the Jaguars, yes. and that's partly why I had to tell yes. you guys I, I can't record this until after the game. You know, so that either. I knew that either the Colts were going to win or lose, or I guess tie. Right. Um, if the Colts lost to the Jaguars, then I couldn't be too mad at the Dolphins because the Colts were just losing to everybody. And if the Colts won, then that would give me some catharsis. And fortunately, that is what happened. And it was it was quite a uh, quite a you got to come sta- back. A statement win. Was Brissett um, back I, I, in this game? Was he? I, yeah, Brissett was back, but we hardly used him. We we had for the first time in Colts history, we had two runners with over a hundred yards. Wow. So, unfortunately, Marlon Mack was injured after getting 95, 109 yards. Wow. But Jonathan Williams, man, he was just balling today. It was it was awesome. I, he's like our like number three running back after Marlon Mack and Jordan Wilkins. So, uh, wow. But he, he just took off. He's been a healthy scratch for most games, and he, this was his opportunity, and he, he went with it. So I was really happy with that. Excellent. By the way, Andrew was the one who first informed me of Andrew Luck's retirement by <laughs> posting a link on Facebook. I hate to be the bearer of so, bad news, but alas. Well, well, I can't feel too, uh, you know, upset at you because you are a Dolphins fan. Right, I mean, I'm, I'm and, sort of, uh, you know, the new Browns or something like that. I don't know, but... I am that was that was quite a game. Yes. Dom, are you into are you into football? I know you're not like super into sports because you like hockey. Uh, hockey's not. <laughs> Wait. Uh, yeah, uh, I'm a Browns guy and an Eagles guy. Uh, so you're a Browns guy. Oh, okay. So one so, game uh, I'd love to talk about the result, and the other game I wouldn't. But probably neither game. Uh, but you, you said you're Browns and Eagles. Yeah, I have parents from Cleveland and Philly. Okay. Okay. Cool. Excellent. Do you have one that you're more loyal to, or is it just equal? Uh, Philly comes first. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Fair. Probably. More um, I was hoping they would beat the Patriots. Obviously. Um, always good when Philly beats the Patriots, or when anybody does. Yeah, exactly. Um, and as far as the Browns, uh, man, that was that that game uh, that 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 brawl at the end. That was something else. Yeah, I just saw the reports on that after it happened. I didn't watch any of it, but. Okay. Yeah, it would have been nice to be able just to celebrate it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right. Well, we're we're here mainly to talk about uh, theology, I guess. Um, so, so Andrew, you said, um, where did you where did you say Sorry. you are now? Uh, I, I'm I'm in Columbus, Ohio. Um, after oh, graduating. really? Columbus, Ohio. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so after graduating um, Hillsdale, I uh, my wife and I came to Central Ohio. Um, I did my 
master's down at Ohio University, which is in Athens, and right now I'm at Ohio State. Um, so we're we've been slowly moving more and more to the center of, of the state and of the city in Columbus. Okay, cool. Um, which is nice, um, and that's kind of what I do right now. Caroline got her. What did you do your master's in, uh, and what are you doing at Ohio State now? Uh, my master's was in ancient and medieval history, um, and my PhD. I don't really know what the final like major and minor will be. Uh, but it will basically be a PhD in ancient history with a focus on um, sort of late antiquity and, and early Christianity. So, yeah. So this this stuff about Irenaeus that we're going is it Irenaeus or Irenaeus? Irenaeus is typically how it's pronounced in oh, English. Whoa. Okay, yeah. I wasn't even close. Irenaeus. Mm-hmm. All right. This stuff is actually stuff that you're researching as part of your school, not just as. Uh, hobby right uh yeah it's it's a it's a reading uh, i would say that um I, I took a class say on gnosticism last spring uh and Irenaeus okay. is a really important source for that um he actually comes off looking right. really good uh in a lot of ways in in that um but yeah this is sort of this thing that that i do for for fun and <laughs> as a job right now so yeah he, he's in my wheelhouse nice. he's a little early um most of the stuff i tend to do is, is a little bit later um, okay. But really, anything from sort of Second Temple Judaism up even into like early medieval stuff with like Bede, um, I gotta know something about it. Um, and I've done, I, I dabble a lot of different things, but <laughs> okay, that's cool. that's what I've been up to. And you, oh, theologically, where are you, Andrew? I, I know you're Protestant. Right. Um, um, basically, I would just call myself sort of a. I mean, this term has been very tortured recently um, for a bunch of reasons, but uh, I would just sort of identify as an evangelical. Um, okay. I mean, that's, I mean, for political reasons and all sorts of other things, I mean, that is a tortured term. Um, it means less than it once did, I think. Um, but, yeah, that's a, that's a, the best describer I think I, I have right now. Um yeah, that's where sort of where I'm at. <laughs> so I, I all right. My, my, have you always been there, or have you changed from? I don't know. I sort of had the impression you were Lutheran at some point, but that's probably because we never talked. No, I. I, I that's in interesting. College. No, um, my brother-in-law is, is Lutheran. Um, was raised Lutheran, okay. but no, I've, I've sort of. I grew up mostly in a non-denominational context. Um, but uh, and the church I go to is, is called the Vineyard here, here in Columbus. Oh, okay. My my wife goes to a vineyard or did growing up okay. in Columbus. Yeah, That's yeah, cool. yeah, yeah. Wait, she, she grew up. Oh, she went to the vineyard here in Columbus. Uh, in Grove City. Okay. Uh, interesting. Interesting. Um, yeah. So that that's sort of where I'm from. Um, it, it's cool, slightly cool. more charismatic than maybe your average uh right. main uh, sort of uh right down the middle of the road evangelical or Baptist church. But that's that's sort of where I'm at right now. So. And Dom, uh, what about you? Tell us. Where you are, uh, theologically, physically, uh, career-wise, <laughs> all that. <laughs> okay, so after I graduated Hillsdale in 2014, I uh, took a gap year and then went on to Notre Dame to get a master's in electrical engineering. Uh, after that, I took a job with Northrop Grumman, working at their semiconductor fab site in Baltimore, uh, working on small-scale electronics and individual transistor research. Uh, after a couple of years of that, I transferred out to where I am now, which is, I guess, down the road from Andrew in Cincinnati. I had no idea we were so close. Right. Right. Um, I've uh, picked up more hardware engineering now, so I work in a digital signal processing group. Uh, so uh, theologically, uh, I am indeed a Roman Catholic, 
um, have been my entire life uh, part of a big Italian Catholic family. Um, but recently, in the last couple of years, have really decided to kind of dig my heels in and go at Scripture a lot, and that led me to start reading the Fathers afterwards. So that's how I came to Irenaeus. Uh, so this is definitely not my job. This is uh, also what I do for fun, but definitely on the level of, um, I, I would say probably more than just a hobby, just because it's been pretty intense um, with how I've been approaching it, but certainly nothing near the level of what uh, Andrew's doing. And I'm actually uh, sort of an expert in Irenaeus as well, although I didn't know how to pronounce his name. But I achieved my expertise by skimming through the Wikipedia article uh, <laughs> during uh, commercial breaks and got about maybe halfway through it uh, this afternoon. So um, can you guys tell, not for my benefit because I'm an expert, but for the rest of my listeners, uh, can you guys explain uh, maybe, Andrew, a little bit about Irenaeus and... and what you've been thinking about him, and then I guess my my goal for this discussion is to talk both about Irenaeus's beliefs on the authority of tradition and scripture and how they relate, and then also to just talk more generally about uh, scripture and tradition uh, and our what we think about them and and all that. Okay. So, so you want me to take this one here, sort of the intro? Yeah. So, okay. Yeah. Just tell okay. us tell us something about Irenaeus and how you got started um, with all this, and and Dom, you can you can chime in too. Right. Okay. So Irenaeus is uh, a fairly early church father. Um, actually, in terms of his influence, he was not uh, not I wouldn't say he wasn't taken seriously, but he was not as perhaps impactful as some of the people who came after him. I think actually most of what we have in him is not in the original Greek that he wrote in, uh, but in but in Latin. So he's writing as a Christian in 2nd century uh, Lyon in Gaul. Um, he is a a, a transplant from Christianity out in Asia Minor, uh, and he is, if I've got my facts straight and re remember, he is replacing a bishop who was just martyred, um, and so he's kind of coming into this community um, that's under fire, uh, not only from external persecution, but it's also got this sort of, uh, the gorilla in the room is Valentinianism, um, which is sort of a branch of what will kind of called Gnosticism. Um, it's a controversial term for, for a bunch of reasons, hard to pin down. So he is writing his uh, Against Heresies mostly to combat uh, various forms of Gnosticism that he sees creeping into uh, with sort of the Christian communities that he is aware of. Um, that's sort of a, a quick uh, like bio of who he is. Oh, oh, the, the Good, good to mention that he um, he knew, uh, or at least remembered, um, uh, what's his name, Polycarp. Um, he came from that community yeah. out in Asia Minor. He says, I remember seeing him and remember him preaching, which is important in the context of this apostolic tradition stuff because he says, you know, it's very, you know, he cleared in that world. You know, Polycarp was the disciple of John, who was the disciple of Jesus himself. So this is a flesh and blood kind of reality for him. So that, that's sort of a short, okay, short okay. background about who, who he is. And and this against heresies that he wrote against this Valentinian, is that yeah, yeah, said, yeah. Right? this form of Gnosticism called Valentinianism, 
he wrote this work called Against Heresies, and that's what he's mostly famous for. Is that right? Yes. I'm not aware that we have anything else from him. Uh, this is the four okay. books of the Edwards Heresies. Uh, is the, the Wikipedia thing. says he also convinced the Pope not to excommunicate a bunch of people for celebrating Easter on the wrong date. So I, I, yes. I like that. I think that you shouldn't excommunicate people over what date they celebrate Easter. Yeah, we maybe have, we have some letters, possibly, as well. I, 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 okay. could, I could be wrong about that, but... All right, but yeah, the the main thing, at least from Wikipedia that I saw, was against heresies. Right. And it sounds like that's sounds like that's right. right. Um, and and so you came to him in your studies of just ancient uh, and early Christianity, right? As part of your uh, degree program. But what what interested you specifically in Irenaeus? Yeah, that's his name. Irenaeus. Right? Yeah, I've been saying Irenaeus in my head the whole yeah, day. So, yeah, uh, it, 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 yeah. So. The, the thing with Irenaeus that is interesting is partly because of how early he is. Um, the the further, I mean, this, we have a bunch of stuff from the New Testament, obviously. Just talking about this, not from like a theological perspective, but just a historical perspective, we got a lot of stuff from the first century. Um, we don't have a ton from the second century. Um, there's there's not a you know just an overwhelming number of sources um uh, but that starts to creep up from there um and th then you, you really you have a christian world after you know constantine so there's a you know a ton of christian sources and church fathers that you can sort through um but the, the way i came to him was because he, he in many ways is trying to wrestle uh, he's, he's certainly one of the earliest to try to wrestle with the problems uh, that not only feature prominently in sort of Roman Catholic and Protestant polemics, um, but they really, I think, go at the heart of what a lot of Christians, frankly, today even continue to, to wrestle with. Uh, where do we get our doctrine from? Uh, what is the relationship between, uh, say, history and the Bible or our institutional churches? Um, you know, how is God working in that? Um, how do we know about the canon of Scripture? Um, so he, he's right. one of the first guys to kind of try to tackle these problems, uh, and that's that's interesting. Um, and also, to, he, again, he also he himself, it should be remembered, is a polemicist, uh, and so it shows you how he argues. And I'm really attracted to. Uh, sort of history of religious controversies because often those give us little you know, windows into how these Christian thinkers process their faith, how they process the Bible, um, how they process doctrine, and that's that's really helpful. Right, because when you when you encounter heresy, you have to figure out how do I refute this and on what on what grounds. Yes. So you have to start rethinking how do I know what is true and. I've noticed this personally when I've had conversations with Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses, right, and right. you know they they say the Bible says X, and I say, well, the Bible doesn't say right. X. And they say, well, <laughs> you know, and it's like, okay, how do I know what's true? And or they'll say the Book of Mormon is true in addition to the Bible, right. and you 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 know you just sort of know it because the Holy Spirit just kind of reveals to you as you read it yes. with an open mind that it's true. And I have to think, okay, well, what do I believe about how I think the Bible is true mm -hmm. and and how I know that the Bible is true? And it's it's encountering heresies just you know makes you think about your own your own beliefs about how you know what's true and and so it sounds like that's kind of what happened with Irenaeus is he's trying to encounter the, the these heretics but in the process he has to say okay what is our ultimate authority how do we know right who's right and who's wrong right and what what conclusions does he come to what does he say well, that's sort of what this is all, all about, and it's one of the reasons, again, he's a feature and a sort of a focal point of disagreement between, um, you know, 
later Protestant, I guess I'll call them theorists, and Roman Catholic theorists in terms of how we get to doctrine. Uh, he, as I read him, is really, so, so it's important to remember he's trying to box out um, the Gnostic beliefs, uh, the Gnostic mode of arguing. And what the Gnostics, were, or the Valentinians or whoever, what they were saying is that they had apostolic tradition, but that it was a secret apostolic tradition that went back um, through like secret teachers. So that there were extra things that Jesus taught the apostles that then got passed down. And this was called uh, gnosis, right? Which is just the Greek word for, for knowledge. But really it's like a, it's like a secret uh, arcane knowledge um, that uh, I think this comes up in 1 Timothy where the, there's even an awareness that this is already starting to happen. Uh, gnosis, falsely so-called. Um, so the, this idea, so he's trying to box that out. Um, and so what I, what I see him doing is really picking up every tool he's got at hand to try to make the argument uh, against the, the Valentinians. And that includes trying to say, look, actually, Apostolic tradition is very transparent. Um, it's actually fairly narrow. You cannot play strange literary games with apostolic tradition, um, as some of the, the Valentinians did. Uh, they played both strange games with, with the Bible and also made, again, odd claims about what apostolic tradition entailed. Um, again, sort of basic Gnostic myths about, uh, uh, you know, different souled people and the creation of the universe that it was you know come out glitch in in the plan um so he, he, <laughs> oh yeah the gnostic stuff is really pretty baddie um and, and it's it's extremely interesting it's also kind of dark um in a lot of ways there's, there's a kind of nietzschean uh or um uh who is it? Paradise Milton Paradise Lost is kind of Miltonian uh, streak. It's very individualistic. It's very um, hostile to institutions. Um, the Valentinians take the edge off of some of that, but in any case, they try to work that stuff back into their reading of Scripture or say, "Look, the apostles actually secretly taught that." And Irenaeus says no, and he makes a bunch of arguments about why that's not the case. Do you see Irenaeus just to be super, uh, I don't know, super uh, basic or whatever? Do you, do you see Irenaeus as more on what you would now consider a Protestant or Roman Catholic side when it comes to the nature of authority and tradition? Well, that's where, I mean, the danger is always with anybody, especially maybe even with people who, who you know, I see this with scholars all the time. You've got to be careful not to read what you want to see into these sources. Um, and this is where I think it would be helpful to know what, what Dom says, because I, I don't exactly... You have different Catholics, I think, who would say different things. And I think my, my view of Irenaeus is that he at least... I, I'd have to hear from, from Dom what exactly a... Like, what is the basic Roman Catholic belief about apostolic tradition and how it functions? In my understanding, from the Catholics I've talked to, I definitely see Irenaeus being at least more on the Protestant end of the spectrum. Um, he certainly has a place for apostolic tradition through the bishops, through the institutional churches, but I think in his mind, that's more something that's just, a, it's a historic, again, think about the Polycarp thing. It's a, it's a historical flesh and blood reality that actually makes a lot of sense in the world of the second century 
that even if you were to believe a very, uh, say, sort of spiritual or charismatic version of apostolic tradition today, as, as I take some, at least, Roman Catholics to believe, um, even if you were to believe that, it's still kind of abstract for us, right? It's kind of this abstract theological idea, whereas, again, for Irenaeus himself, it's, it's sort of a flesh and blood lived reality. Abstract in in what sense? It's just distance from us. So even in so if you, if you take uh, take the the question about apostolic or apostolic excuse me episcopal um, succession, if you go to a big city like Ravenna in Italy, um, there's already by the 800s quite a bit of confusion about who was bishop when and where. Uh, there's a famous chronicler called um, Agnellus who tries to reconstruct the history of the episcopate at, at Ravenna. Um, which is, and Ravenna is, is, like a, is a big deal. It's a big city in, in late antiquity in the early Middle Ages. Um, it's the seat of the empire at one point. Um, and actually, it's quite, quite a newer church in some ways. There's less history that you have to, to master. And already there are big institutional gaps where he's confusing people. He even says at one point, I've, you know, where, I, where I didn't have the information, I prayed to God that he'd give me the, the ability to basically fill in the biographical details of the different bishops. Oh, wow. Right. And so that's just what, so what I mean by abstract is it's just it's very distant to us. Um, it's much the same way, I think, even with the Bible. The figures in the Bible can seem very distant, almost mythological um, or abstract. And it's important to like, no, these, these guys were actually like, running around in, in the world, um, in the Mediterranean, in the Roman Empire. And they spoke Latin and Greek and Aramaic. Um, and, you know, they actually, there, there's ruins of the sort of cities that they, they ran through. Um, and they had lives. And that, that sometimes, I think, is lost um, for us. And so it's, try, it's important, I think, to try to bring that lived reality um, sort of the present if that makes sense mm-hmm. and okay so Dom uh, you've been yeah. quiet what's your what's your take on all of this I think at least as far as reading Irenaeus I don't think I actually read Irenaeus too differently from what Andrew's saying uh, I read Irenaeus as having kind of a, a pretty clear idea of what he means by the apostolic tradition uh, I think one of Irenaeus's big points is that he will always start with scripture when it comes to refuting a heresy. Uh, he outlines pretty early on and against heresies his belief that um, a lot of the fathers would share is that if we start with what's clearest in scripture and work to what's less clear, we can give the scriptures a harmonious reading. And because the church shares the scriptures, uh, there is one faith in the church united with the scriptures, and that that is ultimately what comes down to us from the apostles, and that's the foundation upon which the apostolic tradition is formed. And so he will discuss uh, dialoguing with a heretic and saying, okay, well, first I would refute him from the scriptures. And if the heretic accepts the scriptures, then he would accept this correction, and that's great. Or our heretic might say, oh, well, the scriptures are ambiguous, or there's this hidden knowledge, like what Andrew mentioned, um, that you're simply missing. And now he's casting doubt on this certainty that Irenaeus seems to believe that we have in the scriptures, and he starts invoking these traditions. Well, the issue with the Gnostics is that there's so many different Gnostic sects, that there's so many different traditions that you start, you know, fracturing right away, Um, whereas the church, because it has the tradition from the apostles in the scripture, and that this tradition is openly lived within the church, is unified, Uh, so there's only one tradition in the church. Uh, So if the heretic refuses scripture, then you can invoke the apostolic tradition and say, this is what we're living, and I can show you this because this is what the church does. 
And at that point, either the heretic believes on account of the apostles or then they're lost. They're, at least the discussion changes drastically at that point. Now they're outside the fold of, you know, we can talk about this as if you could still be saved within a Christian context. Um, so that's how I'm reading him. I'm not sure that that's terribly different from what Andrew's saying. Uh, he's kind of grabbing whatever uh, he has at hand to kind of close out the heretics. But I think there is a real progression here um, with how he handles Scripture, and that Scripture comes first for him. Um, and so as I read Irenaeus, then the tradition is largely an interpretation of Scripture and it's that one that is handed down by the apostles through the succession of bishops uh, within the church, such that within the church, if you listen to the presbyters in the church, then you will get the authentic interpretation of Scripture, and that is the apostolic tradition. Um, so so the tr for Irenaeus, tradition exists to interpret Scripture. Is that what you're kind of both saying? I don't want to speak for Andrew. I mean, as I'm reading him, largely, yes, uh, tradition is an interpretation of Scripture as it exists handed down within the church. So it's not necessarily that each and every person in the church is going to read Scripture and read it just this way. It's that what is taught in the, in the church and lived in the church is based on a certain reading of Scripture handed down by the apostles that includes both doctrine and practice. Now, I I'm, have to apologize for my ignorance here, but when Irenaeus was writing, was the, did we have the, the books of Scripture we have? I was going to say 66, but that, that, you know, that's disputed too. Uh, the 66 to, what, what is it, 70, 72, however many books of Scripture. How, how settled was the canon, is my question. Uh, I would have to hand up to Andrew. The short answer is it's not very settled. Um, this, like this is actually what I'm kind of working on on a similar topic with the church historian Eusebius right now. And Eusebius, much later, like he's he's contemporaneous with you know Constantine, uh, so he is oh what at least you know, like a good two centuries or about two centuries after Irenaeus. And Eusebius is famous for kind of saying with the book of Revelation, you know, the so-called Apocalypse of John, we don't know if it's really written by John or not or who this John is. Mm. Um, and so he's actually, so he kind of lays out the arguments from the past few hundred years to try to explain uh, this, is, this is what's been said about Revelation. It's very controversial. Some people except that others don't. Um, he famously puts it on two different lists. He puts it on the canonical list, and he puts it on one of the subcategories of, of kind of rejected. Um, he goes, and he says, you know, if it should seem right, uh, we should put it on both of these. Um, anyway, that is to say, it's still in flux. Certainly, Irenaeus, there's going to be a lot of overlap between the canon that Irenaeus puts forward and the canon that Eusebius puts forward, or that will eventually start to be cemented in church councils after Constantine and after Eusebius. But it's not—it's certainly not rock solid at this point, um, at least with, okay. with the New Testament books. So it's not rock solid, but it's still there's enough there that when he says he's appealing to scripture, he's talking about like maybe the four gospels yes. or maybe at least a couple of them. Precisely. Maybe the book of Romans. Yes. Uh, most okay. of Paul's writing. I mean, it's fr frankly, it's going to be most, most of the stuff that, you know, 
the Gospels are pretty much uncontested. Uh, most of Paul's writing is uncontested. There's some stuff on the margins, especially some of the smaller books that end up in the back of the New Testament. Some of the letters of John, uh, the, the letters of Peter, um, Revelation. Hebrews is a very is a messy one because it doesn't doesn't tell you who wrote it, <laughs> and so right. you know, a, those books come up for debate. But frankly, I mean, the, the way I sort of see it is, if we lost those books, I mean, it would you know certainly be a shame. But I don't know that Christianity would look terribly different um if that's uh uh, kosher to say sure okay so yeah so that was just my asking basically when he says he's appealing to scripture did scripture exist then yeah in in the sense that it does now it sounds like you're saying not quite as rock solid it wasn't bound in like a copy that contains all 66 books right. like we have today but right. it was it was more or less there were some books at least that you could appeal to that everyone would sort of agree with scripture yes i think you'd, we'd be mostly even like i'd, I'd imagine given I, i've not like tracked what is like the liturgical reading say in the catholic church or in a lutheran context um but i'd imagine that most of the books most of where like the readings and the homiletics and the sermons that have been given today or you know in, in the the years leading up to today are mostly what they were probably focusing on in in the, the second century um so yeah now dom uh we've talked about how irenaeus seemed to think that tradition exists to interpret scripture how does that compare with your understanding of roman catholic teaching on the nature of tradition uh, so that is a tricky question. Andrew pointed out rightly that uh, there isn't really a single Roman Catholic position on this question that's absolutely set in stone. Uh, so as far as my own teaching goes, I tend to follow Irenaeus uh, and say that I understand tradition, at least insofar as it concerns discussing God and discussing salvation and those things that must be revealed to be known then yes, tradition is an interpretation of Scripture that is handed down through the Church, but is still authentically always an interpretation of Scripture. Um, we don't take sources from it um, from anywhere else. Uh, and I think that that's not terribly controversial among Catholics. Uh, I think that there, uh, especially after the Reformation, there's a larger emphasis on unwritten traditions and how we understand the unwritten traditions in the Church. Um, where exactly we draw the line between written and unwritten traditions and what constitutes either. And I am not fit to carry on that discussion for fear of misrepresenting somebody. Um, But at least in my own thinking, um, as I've been reading the scriptures lately, as I've been engaging with the fathers and with Irenaeus, I think that that's a largely common sense among the fathers that um, we read the scriptures, the scriptures give us what the church does and what the church believes and the presbyters in the church for the sake of those who don't read the scriptures or don't read them as well or whatever the case may be for the sake of teaching the faithful expound the scriptures to them without danger without fear because they are united in the tradition of the apostles and so it's not as if tradition is so bound to scripture that someone's reading out of the book to you every time something comes to you from the tradition but it is closely related to it in the sense that it, it's rooted in it, but it's also handed down personally, right? Um, such that it can be taught and lived by actual people. It's not a, uh, it's not something that you could just set to paper, really. So, so it sounds like you're trying to say it's it's not the same as just uh, 
writing everything down in a book and handing it to the next person. Like you need you need one person to talk about the scripture with the next person and so on in order to really get the full sense of the apostles teaching is that what you're saying uh i am not sure that that's quite what i'm saying um because i think that irenaeus is right to say that the scriptures can give their interpretation you can read the scriptures well and get the meaning of the scriptures from the text Uh, i think uh, the point that Irenaeus is making and that I follow him on is that the gift of the presbyters is that they have this exposition. Uh, they're given the gift of understanding this exposition and handing it on uh, so that they can teach about things that come from the scriptures without necessarily having to point me into the scriptures exactly where, when, and give me the whole long reading of the Torah and everything else uh, to get me there. I'm not sure that that means necessarily that I need somebody uh, to tell me what the scriptures mean outside of the scriptures, um, but that there is a, an authority given uh, divine help to understand the scriptures so that the true reading of the scriptures is preserved through time, if that makes sense. Okay, so you're saying that, that the Holy Spirit guides the presbyters. Pre- presbyter means what, like bishop, basically, or, or yeah, something the bishops, like that? the priests. The priest. Okay, so so the Holy Spirit guides the presbyters in their reading of Scripture, so that when they are trying to read and interpret it, they're going to do so correctly. Is that is that right? Uh, or, or is it or is it not that the Holy Spirit? What I just said sort of sounds like the Holy Spirit could guide one guy who's not within a tradition, but if I'm you know a presbyter and I just come upon my Bible for the first time or maybe a group of people does and they've never heard it before and they choose somebody as their presbyter uh the holy spirit could guide that person to have sort of a like an infallible interpretation um but then that's that's not tradition that's just kind of the holy spirit giving somebody guidance um or are are, so are you saying something like that or are you saying something like the the apostles had an infallible interpretation of scripture because they knew what they had meant when they wrote it, and so as they're talking to the next person, you know, Polycarp or whatever, they sort of talk to him about what it actually means, and it's something that maybe if you read it, if you're reading it correctly, you could get just from the Bible, but it's nice to have this, you know, the apostles telling Polycarp, and then Polycarp telling Irenaeus, and, and so on, so that we can make sure that they're all interpreting it correctly. Yeah, it sounds like the second thing that you said, that uh, the apostles have the complete knowledge of what has been revealed, and they had set down what they intend to pass on in the scriptures, and they hand on the scriptures and their teaching to the church, which then carries it forward uh, in the succession. Um, But then um, it's not as if because that authority exists, then that the scriptures then are insufficient without it to lead one to truth. But I think um, a pretty interesting point, at least, that I see in Irenaeus, and uh, Andrew might disagree, is that um, those who read the scriptures rightly then are part of the church, and they're an active part of the church, because the scriptures, uh, the right reading of the scriptures entails a practical element to it that you live within the church if you're reading them rightly. Uh, So the institutional question isn't simply a question of authority, I guess the way it's often thought of now, where... Um, often we would think of the Catholic Church as the authority I need in order to understand Scripture, period. 
I think for Irenaeus, it's the authority that you go to if you want to make sure that you're reading the scriptures rightly because you know that they're reading them rightly and that anybody who is reading them rightly is with those guys. You said Andrew might disagree. Andrew, what do you think? So as far as I'm following what Dom is saying, um, I think I mostly, mostly I think we actually do agree um, on, on what Irenaeus is saying. I think where the, where the maybe the problem is going to arise um, is where we. I guess it kind of becomes the issue of what happens with with tradition um, and what do we mean by tradition today. Um, so let me let me pose a problem here, and maybe maybe this. And I don't mean this like a sort of like a trap or a place to have an argument, but I just I want to maybe this will help. Uh, focus this a little bit. So if you took the question of, of tradition, as Irenaeus understands it, first first of all, I think that he has a fairly, fairly minimalist understanding of what tradition is. Uh, he, I don't think it's... Um, I don't think it's very expansive. Um, it tends to be, well, let's put it this way, I think it's very much a kind of mere Christianity. Because I think he even tells us at one point what, because he says you know, there are barbarians out there who don't have the scripture, and yet they live Orthodox Christianity, and they, they have, uh, they, they've got Orthodox Christianity. Um, and so the, so the, there is, and then he sort of lists like here's what they believe, and it's it almost kind of like hits beat for beat what you would find in say the, the Apostles' Creed, and then he says here are the places at which there can be like development or expansion, so things like uh, most of it's just sort of like the 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 long arc of the history of the people of God, um, things like. Um, uh, where parables can be understood, or how it is, how there were, you know, were types in the Old Testament that are understood now to be pointing to Christ in, in the New Testament, and on and on. Okay, so that's 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 how I understand it, and so far I think that's what I understand Dom to be saying. Where I think we run into trouble would be something like, and you know, like Dom can can comment on this, is where um, you have something that is developed rather late. Um, that comes in, say, uh, well, it's a good example would be something like uh, the Assumption of Mary, right? Um, which um, there is a tradition, and it goes back a ways, um, but it's certainly not defined until pr pretty, pretty late. Um, and as I, as I read Irenaeus, he would say you can't then appeal to the apostolic tradition to get that kind of teaching uh, into... Uh, sort of the articles of faith, the things that Christians ought to believe. Uh, as, as I read him, he would say, look, the apostolic tradition is mere Christianity. That's a good guardrail, like the Dom's right, that it's it's the way, it tells you basically you know, how to avoid reading the scripture in bad faith. Um, and that's, that's right and proper. What I don't know is, is again, how you can get some of these later ideas, or, or things about, say, the, the Pope, um, that come in rather late uh, that, that don't seem to match the sort of mere Christianity that I see Irenaeus talking about. So I think that's probably where we, we have a bit of a rub. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, that is a, a point of disagreement, <laughs> I would say. Uh, but I think this is where my limited historical knowledge will get the better of me simply because I can't speak to the traditions that led to um, some of the later definitions, um, but uh, 
as far as I'm reading Irenaeus, though, I think um, I think I'm reading him as thinking at least somewhat broader in terms of what tradition contains. I'm not sure um, he doesn't enumerate. You're right in his enumerations of Orthodox Christianity. He enumerates certain specific beliefs, um, and I'm not able to find the page right now, but. Um, but I read him as understanding what has been handed down in the scriptures as something pretty broad, not necessarily in the sense that he has every single thing worked out and every single detail has an interpretation. But uh, I see him in the fourth book giving a pretty well-developed account of the law through the whole scripture from the Gentiles before the law, through the Mosaic law, to Christ, through Paul, and then on into the church that uh, speaks to a really great continuity and a really full reading of Scripture that I think suggests that there's more than simply a few doctrinal points backing up the arguments that he's making and his exposition of the faith. Uh, I'm not sure how that would translate into how he would put, you know, what one must believe, um, but I think it informs his view of what the Church is and what the Church is doing, um, and he seems to think of the Church as tied quite closely to a fulfillment of the law, um, but, um, so as far as that goes, I'm not sure I agree on terms of he's defending a simple mere Christianity. I think there's more to the church that maybe isn't as necessary to his case against the Gnostics. It's not coming out quite as explicitly here, but I'm not convinced it's not present. Um, but as for the question of development, um, I think that earlier on, uh, in, a, in Against Heresies, you're right, he does, um, he enumerates where we might think about going further in our investigations into Scripture, that some might have greater insight, greater grace, whatever, in terms of reading Scripture. Some might give a deeper, more complete exposition than others, and that's great, uh, because they're all the same Scriptures, right? They will all uh, ultimately be harmonious if it's done well. Uh, I'm not sure that what he's saying is then that that's the sum total of knowledge that's um, handed down in the church period, or that um, these are the things that are concerning God and concerning salvation. Um, and I don't recall him, uh, and this is just me having a gap in my mind here, just because I'm coming at this in my memory now. Um, I don't recall him establishing um, total boundary of knowledge um, here. I think he's most concerned with knowledge of God, knowledge of Christ, knowledge of salvation. These are the things that God revealed to us. These are things that the apostles taught to us that must be divinely revealed, that we don't take on the testimony of men. Um, and insofar as things like the life of Mary um, and other uh, functions of the church are more historical details that can be testified to by human witnesses, um, in a way that's different from, you know, relating the whole history of the people of God and the drama of salvation in Christ and interpreting it. Um, I think there is something of a difference there. I'm just not sure that it's in Irenaeus. Um, so I think that that would be maybe leaning toward a different discussion. Um, but um, I think that's the best I have for now. So it sounds like you're both saying that Irenaeus believes, and I think you both agree with Irenaeus here, that tradition, what tradition does is it, it helps you interpret scripture correctly. 
But Andrew, it sounds like you're saying Irenaeus has a pretty narrow view of, of how um, expansive of an interpretation you can have. You, you brought up mere Christianity, right. the idea that the, the sort of basics of the faith are what tradition gives us and makes sure that we're interpreting that correctly, whereas Dom, you seem to be saying that tradition um, can help us interpret all of Scripture, any any doctrine like, you know, the, say, you know, pick, pick something that's not necessarily an issue of mere Christianity, like whether or not you believe in predestination or whether or not you believe in, you know, some other <laughs> doctrine that you're, is maybe... You're make some people nervous maybe, there, Daniel. <laughs> <laughs> Why do you say that? Oh, about predestination. I, I just some of my Calvinist friends are going to get very uncomfortable. <laughs> I'm, I, I joke a little bit, but but go on. I'm sorry. I, I'm know. Calvinist, by the way. Oh, I'm okay. Calvinist, oh man, I, I don't think whole, you have to be Calvinist podcast. to be. <laughs> yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, but I don't think you have to be Calvinist to be a Christian. You know. So like that. So I'm just picking that as an example about of things that you can disagree with. Um. And it sounds, Andrew, like you're saying that maybe Irenaeus's view of tradition would not really give tradition the ability to sort of resolve the question of predestination because it's not uh, an essential, well, I don't know if we agree about that, um, but hopefully we do uh, because it sounds like you're not a Calvinist and if you think that being a Calvinist means you're not a Christian, then, oh gee, that's too bad. Um, <laughs> no, we agree. We agree. <laughs> okay. Yeah, we are. So we agree that we agree that like you know wh- whether you believe in predestination or not or, or in what sense you do is not an essential essential aspect right. of, of Christianity like make or break, and so tradition would maybe not really give a definitive answer on that. Whereas maybe Dom's interpretation of Ir- Irenaeus would say that maybe tradition can give whether it has or not, but but maybe can give a definitive interpretation of that. Am I? I think so. So I guess my I, my question is twofold. First of all, am I accurate in describing what you're both saying? I think you're accurate in what I'm saying. I'm not totally sure. This is, this is where I'm still trying to tease out what what, what Dom thinks. Uh, I I'm trying to so maybe I guess what I'm trying to figure out with with Dom is where that space comes in for. Um, how did you put it? Like historical witnesses to something like like uh, the life of Mary. Um, or, okay, yeah, yeah. So that's actually my next question too, because I was going to ask then if if you're going to say Irenaeus says uh, in, that tradition can give us you know anything that's in Scripture basically. If you can get predestination out of Scripture or non predestination out of Scripture, then tradition can help you with that. Tradition like that falls under the purview of tradition. But then there are certain things that are clearly not in Scripture one way or the other, like how did Mary die or what happened to her body after she died or, you know, did she rise again? Like, I think we would all agree that nobody can read the Bible and come away with any sort of idea about what happened to Mary after she died. Like, that's only, you know, extra-biblical stuff. So so how, if, if Irenaeus is right that tradition is only there to help you figure out um, how to interpret the Bible, then how can you get doctrines like that that are not uh, not really mentioned one way or another in the Bible? Right, so the difficulty here is that I'm also trying to tease out what I think uh, to a certain degree. This is all still largely new to me, too. Um, but uh, what I will say is, uh, regarding your first question on sort of the scope of tradition and how we resolve questions, um, I think that 
uh, Irenaeus is careful to set boundaries on that too, to advise against multiplying questions that we ask of Scripture beyond what Scripture gives us uh, to ask. Um, but hmm. We can seek knowledge insofar as we're doing so for the sake of understanding God, but if we are simply you know, multiplying question after question after question, then we can quickly lead ourselves to go beyond um, the bounds of Scripture if we're asking questions about God. And because of the smallness of created minds, you know, there are limits to what we can know. And if we step beyond the boundaries of what we can know about what's uncreated, then we can start leading ourselves into error because we don't have a capacity to know those things on our own without revelation. Um, and I think that that sort of leads into the next question. Um, and again, this is where my limits uh, historically uh, come to trip me up because I simply don't know what sources we have. Um, but it does seem to me to be something different where if the apostles have letters detailing this, that, and the other um, doctrinal, doctrinal point or interpretation of the life of Christ or interpretation of the law or however you want to put it, um, it's something they can write all those letters but they also live in the same time as, say, Mary. And so what happens to Mary is something that they witness or whoever's with them witnesses um, and that they can testify to what happened then without necessarily putting it in the letters that then wind up in the canon. Um, and so I think this is where I would have to ask Andrew again about the sort of history of the canon and how this was determined because I think the, the questions about the canon sort of play into this too, right? That um, we don't necessarily have every single thing that happened relevant to Christianity documented in something that made it into the canon. Mm, I see. But I see. we do have potentially testimonies of things that happened historically in those times that then became important within the church. Um, so I, I don't yeah. see that we can use we can use one thing to box out the other thing if both are true, just for the sake of discussion, granting that all of them are true, right? Mm -hmm. We have a canon that contains all these letters but doesn't contain necessarily direct testimony of this particular event that happened. But granting that the event happened, it still happened. And if we have testimonies and it happened and it happened, then it's still the truth, right? Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and so, and so I think that that's where um, trying to make too rigid a box out of this gets troublesome. Um, right. And this is something I'm still teasing out. Um, I'm reading some later writers now who obviously are part of some of these other traditions and are saying things about the dormition of Mary and this, that, and the other, uh, while at the same time saying, when we speak about God, we can't go beyond Scripture because that's the boundary of our knowledge because we can't figure this out on our own. Um, and so it seems like that's kind of how it jives for them, where they say, okay, we have these testimonies from these people who witnessed these things, as far as these events in human history that are relevant to the history of salvation go. But insofar as we're talking about God or what God has done in Christ, that all is a matter of revelation because that's totally beyond a purely human witness, right? Right. Yeah, um, I think, uh, first of all, let me just say, I really appreciate the intellectual honesty, Dom. Um, it's, it's helpful and actually much more enjoyable to like talk about this tease out where these differences come through rather than like being at each other's throats which was a little bit more where I was uh, several years ago um, I, I was I had my dander up about these things a little bit more um, so um, 
getting away from Hillsdale for a while helps. Yes, it does, <laughs> believe it or not. It does. Um, so, t- I guess I guess what, what I would say, uh, sort of a comment or uh, to, to move the discussion forward is, well, if it's... You're definitely right that there is in these sources... I, I wrote my master's thesis on the early traditions associated with Mary um, and how okay. they, they actually cause some... some uh, certainly, like, I would not... I would not at all say that it's not an early tradition. Like, it, it is there, and it is early. Um, the question exactly is, like, where it's coming from. And so there are there are accounts, like the Protevangelium of James, um, that, you know, supposedly, you know, is being said to be written by, uh, uh, I guess it would be the, uh, the, 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 not the foster brother, the, um, the stepbrother of Jesus, the, bro- the James. Right. Um, Right. So I th- and I think that yes, there are sources. So a good example, I think, of what you're talking about would be someone like uh, Origen, right? Who says he believes in a lot of what the Protevangelium, or he calls it the Book of James, what it says, and he notes about about Mary specifically, and he notes that some Christians like it. Um, but he and some other sources also point out that not all Christians. In fact, I think they say most Christians don't agree with this, um, or they don't they don't follow or track with what what he is uh, what what this book says. And so, yes, they, they definitely and they you know they're really strong, of course, on this idea of uh, you know scripture and the importance of that. And I think they would mostly agree with what Irenaeus has to say about tradition, uh, although Clement and Origen would would. They formulate um, tradition a little differently. They don't see it as flowing through the uh, apostles. Sorry, through the um, they, it is from the apostles, but not so much through the bishops. They see it as flowing through teachers, um, special like philosophers, because that's how uh, tradition was done in the Greek philosophical schools. You know, you had Plato, and then you had Aristotle, and then yeah, you know, I guess you, maybe Alexander the Great could <laughs> be counted in there somewhere. Um, so yeah, there, there definitely is a place for these other ideas. Um, what I guess the next step in the conversation is, is d- can you then take those things and add them to the level of... So, so, so supposing it's true, what, what is said about Mary, the, the Protevangelium has it, has it right, does that, is that raised to... Uh, or, or something like with predestination, right? Does, does that then become an article of faith equal to, say, the virgin birth, which is very clearly um, uh, you know, set forth and established in the books of the Bible, and I assume, like, in, in the apostles' uh, tradition they're handing down. Is, are those equal, and are we equally, like, supposed to believe in those things? Now, can, I want to jump in yeah, here yeah. just for a second, because what you're saying, Andrew, brings up another question that I wanted to ask Dom, and that is, my understanding of Roman Catholic teaching is that tradition and scripture have equal authority. Is that right? So that, uh, that, that is a big question. Um, first, whether we would simply say that as said, and what we would mean when we say that, right? Because uh, you, could, you could clearly give a reading of Irenaeus, or you could say the tradition and the scripture have the same authority because they're basically saying the same things, right? Um, uh, I think that the difficulty comes um, 
and Andrew can correct me on this too if, if I'm wrong on this, it seems like after the Reformation, there really is a more conscious sundering of uh, scripture and tradition as separable categories rather than uh, things that kind of play into one another so much so that there really isn't too much discussion of tradition as its own thing in a lot of writings. Um, I know reading Aquinas, there isn't any invocation of a tradition. There's just citations from scripture or from fathers cited as commentators on scripture um, to carry forward discussion of things that Aquinas takes to be revealed knowledge. Um, and so there's um, objections where the objector would say, oh, well, that's not in scripture. And Aquinas's answer every single time is, well, go back and read it better. Um, <laughs> so there, there's not, um, there's never this sort of invocation of, oh, yes, but the unwritten traditions. Um, that um, Aquinas will propose. Now you can, Aquinas' sources and the quality of his sources and the authenticity of all of his sources are other discussions, um, but I think as far as what he thinks he's doing, he's using commentators on Revelation or Revelation itself to talk about the things that must be revealed. Um, so I, I, I think that when we talk about scripture and tradition having relative levels of authority, you're already presupposing a sort of separation or a separability of them that makes that comparison necessary. Um, and I guess where I'm thinking from right now, I don't take that to be necessary. And so it's a hard question for me to answer just because it forces me to think in terms in which I don't think. So, okay, so you said that separation happened after the Reformation. Um, we're now 500 years after the Reformation, so how can... So it sounds like you're saying you sort of want to adhere to a more pre-Reformation sort of understanding of these things. Um, if that's true, how do you account for the authority of the current Roman Catholic Church and where they are now in the things that they're teaching? Because, you know, my understanding, and... and please correct me if I'm wrong, is that the current Roman Catholic Church is teaching that tradition can say things that are completely separate from Scripture, like the Assumption of Mary and like, uh, I don't know, say, purgatory, or uh, maybe, maybe that maybe you would say that's taught in Scripture, I don't know. But, um, you know, pick, pick some other doctrine um, that, that is sort of not taught in Scripture, but is very much held as absolute authority by the Roman Catholic Church today. How do you account for that? Uh, so, sorry, I'm just thinking a minute. Um, sure. I'm sorry, I just blanked. Can you just repeat your question really quickly? <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. Okay, so <laughs> I, I probably rambled too much. So um, so let's take the Assumption of Mary as, as an example. So let, let's assume that that happened, um, but, we know, but the tradition that tells us that the Assumption of Mary happened is completely extra-biblical. You know, maybe it comes from the apostles or people who were close to them, but it's certainly not in Scripture, and it's certainly not in anybody commenting on Scripture. You, have, you, you cannot sit down and read your Bible and and come up with the Assumption of Mary. Right? We all agree on that? Yeah. So so then, assuming that that did happen, that we do have a tradition that tells us that that happened, um, Roman Catholics today want to say, and this is my understanding, and I, I'm not a Roman Catholic today, so, you know, 
you can correct me if I'm wrong, but Roman Catholics today want to say that there are two completely separate things, or, or maybe not completely separate, but but that the scripture is one one source of revelation and tradition is another one. Tradition can include interpretations of scripture, but tradition is also free to include things that are absolutely not interpretations of scripture, but are just this, this stuff that's passed down about, you know, the assumption of Mary, the sinlessness of Mary, you know, or, you know, purgatory, you know, whatever. And those two things are equally authoritative sources. If you okay. want to, it sounds to me like you want to say, well, I agree with Irenaeus, I just think that tradition exists to interpret scripture, and that's really the only authoritative thing we have is scripture and tradition interpreting scripture, then how do you account for the current Roman Catholic Church saying, if you're going to be a Roman Catholic, you have to believe that all of these other things are on equal authority with scripture? Does that question make right. sense? Yes, that does make sense. So I think uh, your first question was the view of scripture and tradition that I would propose and how more generally than those specific doctrines, I would think about the Catholic Church today, right? Um, I mean, I would say that this is sort of what we were getting at before when we were talking about tradition not necessarily involving having Scripture spelled out for you with all the footnotes and everything showing you this particular interpretation that was handed down, right? Um, I think that at least in my view, what counts as taught in Scripture is a lot broader than what is commonly taken, at least among Catholics, to be taught in Scripture, uh, and in a more substantial mm. way maybe than even Catholics appreciate. But those things are still taught and practiced within the Church, right? They're still handed down, they're still the tradition, and so even though we don't necessarily understand them as being taken directly out of the Scriptures from this, that, the other place, or according to this reading of things, uh, if that's what they are, that's what they are, right? And that's how they've come down to us. Um, and like Irenae says, someone with more insight can show us these things and where they come from and how they're all related to Revelation. Um, so I've heard, so, I've heard. it sounds like, like an example that you might be talking about is the Trinity. One argument for Roman Catholicism I've heard is that if you just read the Bible, you can't get the Trinity out of it. It's just, you know, it's not there, so you need you know, tradition, and all you Protestants believe in the Trinity, so really, you're screwed if you don't have tradition, so you should uh, you should believe that tradition is authoritative as well. And it sounds like what you're saying, and honestly what I would say too, is no, I think the Bible does say the Trinity's, you know, I think you can get the doctrine of the Trinity out of the Bible if you are interpreting it rightly. Yeah, I'm saying something similar to that, that there are doctrines in there like the Trinity that are present in Scripture where Yes, if you're reading it rightly, you can understand it within Scripture, but there are these men who are teaching it to us, who are given to us, and are given guidance by God. You have to teach that to us, who are our guarantee that that's the correct reading of Scripture. Um, so, like, you brought up purgatory. Like, I would say, yes, there is a teaching of purgatory in Scripture, and we're not going to get into that right now, but... Oh, for, man. Next episode. Of... Next episode. Okay. <laughs> no, no, thank you. <laughs> um, but just for the sake of discussion, right, um, say that that gets passed down and passed down and passed down, and um, nobody really writes a treatise on that particular question of the afterlife, and so no one really has this spelled out, but somewhere down the road it did begin as an interpretation of these types in the Old Testament, or however you want to put it, um, 
that eventually got handed down as a doctrinal teaching, but then kind of came to exist as a doctrinal teaching and wasn't really consciously connected as well later on, necessarily. Um, it doesn't cease to be a teaching that has roots in Revelation, but it can be considered as a teaching that sort of sits um, at some distance from it, at least as it's understood. Um, and so I guess that's how I see a certain amount of Catholic teachings now, where they have um, incredibly deep roots, but maybe it's not as appreciated, at least on the common level. I'm sure that there are those who study this for a living, unlike me, um, who could, you know, tell me all about it. But, um, but at least on the common level, um, I think that um, our sort of popular understanding of scripture and tradition could be enriched by Irenaeus in the sense that we would become more intent on thinking of things in the tradition in terms of how is this related to scripture. Um, as for the question of things like Mary, again, uh, I think then one of the worries is equivocating on tradition, right? Um, to say that what Irenaeus means by apostolic tradition is the same thing or should be the same thing or should be the measure of what we consider um, tradition in the Catholic Church today, right? Um, like we discussed before that if we have accounts that we assume are historical of things that happened to Mary in history, what do we do with those, right? Um, and so they can form a kind of tradition of sorts, a, a teaching that is handed down that may not be a part of the same um, authoritative tradition from the apostles that Irenaeus is discussing, but it's also something that's handed down within the church. Uh, and say, I uh, believe the belief in, well, as a Catholic, I believe that it's true, right? And I believe that the church was, it was revealed to the church um, that it was true. Um, I don't exactly know the process of the declarations on these things, but Again, I believe the men that are teaching them have a divine gift for teaching them. I, ha I believe that when they go to deliberate on these things, on these matters, they have a reason to do so. Um, they have um, proper intent in doing so. Uh, they listen to the Holy Spirit when they do so. Um, and I can't really say how revelation happens because that exceeds the bounds of human knowledge. Um, all I can say is I believe that, yes, if these are the guys who have the gift to expound the scriptures to me, then they will also you know, have the authority to give the answers on these things. Uh, but those things also, um, I don't believe, are totally foreign to Scripture either, not in the sense that, you know, if you look at this one passage of Scripture, we can interpret this as an image that looks sort of like this, um, but in the sense that I don't see anything dealing with Mary that, in terms of what happens to her, that isn't... Um, promised also to the saints, right? That isn't a figure of, this is what it looks like to be a saint um, that we can understand from Scripture. So it's not as if these traditions about Mary are just ginning up some crazy fan fiction a la Gnosticism where, you know, she does, she gains these superpowers and does these things and tries to understand the unknowable one and then the universe happens or whatever, right? Um, these are things right. that um, happen according to the pattern of what we might expect would happen to the first among the saints. Um, so I see. Um, it's not necessarily that, oh man, that's in the Bible, but it's also, well, this isn't like it's totally unrelated and they just kind of pulled this out of nowhere or however it happened. Um, so right. I, I think that's about all I can say right now. Okay, so it sounds like what you're saying 
is that uh, that yes, tradition interprets scripture, and and that's the the sort of authoritative apostolic tradition that Irenaeus is talking about. And you think that that includes a lot more than even what your average Roman Catholic today would say. I mean, they're saying maybe that you can't even get the Trinity out of Scripture, and you're saying you can get the Trinity, you can get purgatory, um, you know, you can get, like, a much richer doctrine out just out of Scripture if you're interpreting it correctly, and we have this tradition, these these people exegeting Scripture. Exegeting? Is that, is that a word? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> we we have these these presbyters exegeting scripture guided by the Holy Spirit and they're doing it correctly because they're guided by the Holy Spirit. And so that's how we get this tradition. But maybe that happened a thousand years ago and and then those two things sort of people forgot how you get it out of scripture even though somebody did get it out of scripture a thousand years ago and that's why people now today don't think that it's in scripture, even though it is. Is that kind of, that's kind of what you're saying, right? Yeah, more or less. That yeah, this is all one teaching at one point. How we understand it, you know, we weren't guaranteed perfect knowledge the way that the apostles had perfect knowledge. You know, we were guaranteed right. sound doctrine. You know, um, that mm-hmm. the church would lead us not into error. And so, I'm not saying that oh man, look, everything's wrong. The Catholic Church is wrong. I'm saying. No, we're still good, but we could have an enriched understanding of these things, and I think that Irenaeus urges us in the right direction to find that. Okay, interesting. So, (laughs) sorry, I have to apologize because somebody told me that I should not say interesting on my podcast. Um, (laughs) So, I guess I was using it as a verbal pause too much. I don't know if he's listening right now. Anyway, so, then you're also saying that there is sort of a, a, se- a separate thing from that, from the apostolic tradition and exposition of Scripture, there's also just like this sort of historical thing where, where Mary is raised from the dead or, or whatever whatever happened to her. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not very knowledgeable about what all the different beliefs are about that, but my understanding is there's even some uh, discussion about what happened. But there was some sort of assumption um, of Mary. She was taken up to heaven and that was passed down sort of like just any other historical event might be passed down that you know uh, obviously a very significant event and so since we have that historical record th- there's reason to trust that but maybe that's not as but that's not part of the apostolic tradition that Irenaeus is talking about uh, I wouldn't so this is where it gets tricky right um, because I think that something does happen when it is defined by the church. I don't think that something new is created, right? I think something is established as something that we know as being revealed. Um, and again, So it is exact, authoritative. It is authoritative. Um, and the exact mechanics of that, I do not know. I but maybe it's something totally like honest. the Holy Spirit guides the presbyters as they're exegeting scripture, and then also the Holy Spirit guides the historians or the, the church leaders as they're doing the work of a historian, not just the work of an exegete. Sure, yes. As they evaluate things that have been handed down, yes, we believe that the Holy Spirit does guide them in terms of teaching us what we ought to know. Um, now, do, what, what about Mary's um, sinlessness and perpetual virginity? Are those uh, are those more of the historical or the scriptural uh, route? Which, which of those 
two routes did they take to get here? <laughs> we are quickly running up against the bounds of my knowledge because I, I have not done the historical study on uh, teachings on Mary, um, but... I but do think, you think you can get them from Scripture? You said you think you can get purgatory from Scripture, um, and yeah. if you want to punt on this question, that's fine. But okay, yes, you think uh, you can get Mary's yeah, well, sinlessness? Wait, that was yes on purgatory. <laughs> oh, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no problem. Uh, so I think um, that reading Scripture uh, in light of sort of the figure of the law and what a sacrifice means in the law and what it means to offer a pure sacrifice according to the law, and then thinking of the New Testament as an account of that actually happening. Um, I think that, you know, especially the way the prophets will interpret the law for the Hebrews and tell them about it, um, about the disposition of the one making an offering, about um, what the offerings really mean, right? It's not about the animal you're sticking on the altar. It's about the disposition of your soul. It's about what it means for who you are in relation to God. Um, I think that to understand the New Testament sacrifice as being that true, pure sacrifice that happens once for the establishment of the church, then you, know, you can't slam dunk say, yes, I proved the purity of Mary, but I think there's a very strong suggestion that that's not coming totally out of left field either on a scriptural basis. So Mary is the one offering the sacrifice. So in insofar as she's the one who bears Christ into the world, yes, right? She is the one who, for the, right, she is, um, let me uh, get my images straight here, so Irenaeus will compare her with Eve, um, right, and so she is sort of the new Eve to the new Adam, um, she's the one where Eve would bring the fruit forward in disobedience, Mary brings Christ forward in her obedience to God, um, where the Ark of the Covenant carried um, you know, the covenant into the promised land, Mary comes and brings Christ into the world. Um, so she has this role that then would be analogous to in the sacrificial system of the Mosaic covenant, the one who brings the animal into the court of the temple, into the sphere in which the sacrifice takes place, right? If we understand the sacrifice of Christ encompassing his whole life, she is the one who brings Christ into the sphere of this world. Uh, so she has a functional role in that pattern, um, is what I would say, that uh, says something about who she is. Now, does that mean that she alone, some total, is the one who offers it? No, obviously, primarily, it's an offering from God of himself, right? It's God of himself through her and through the handwork of his chosen people and the Gentiles, right? His chosen people who happen to sentence Jesus to death and the Gentiles who happen to help carry it out. Um, so right. in some total, it winds up being an offering for all of humanity, but insofar as it's brought into the sacrificial stage of the world, it happens through Mary for the sake of everybody else. Hmm, okay. And so are you, are, are you, is that your scriptural argument then? And are you saying that if, you rightly understand scripture, everyone ought to be, you know, if you're clever enough or, or with it enough in whatever sense, anyone who reads scripture ought to be able to get this? Uh, that's my argument for saying that it's not necessarily objectionable that we believe it. 
I'm not willing to go so far as to say that if you're reading scripture rightly, you're going to agree with that slam dunk period. Um, that, um, at least as far as I've thought through it, I mean, again, scripture's okay. huge and there's a lot to think about. Um, but at least as far as I've thought through it, at least makes it seem probable for me that, you know, that would be the case, or at least believable that that would be the case and that having testimonies to the purity of Mary in her life, um, which I do believe exists, but Andrew can expand on that or correct me on that, um, would seem to suggest that, okay, maybe they see these things too, or maybe that's where, you know, there's a point of contact here, and it's not necessarily just this really cute, pious thing that popped up somewhere. You know, maybe they are actually, maybe not in a way that I can demonstrate to you from the scriptures, but a way that I can point to you and say, doesn't that seem like then this isn't just developing totally apart from the scriptures? Okay. So that would fall more into the category of the assumption of Mary kind of thing than it sounds like from what you're saying. Uh, I think as far as I know now, yeah, it would probably fall somewhere in there, yes. Andrew, you've been quiet for a while. Uh, do you want to weigh in on any of this? Sure. There's a lot to unpack there. Um, I think... So if we're getting... Let's try to ground it again in Irenaeus. And I, and I think... Um, I don't think... First of all, I, I like what Dom is saying more than actually I've heard maybe some... Um, stricter Roman Catholic, not to say he's not a strict Roman Catholic, but uh, some more strident Roman Catholic voices. Um, so I, I appreciate that, and I think it's a healthier view. I think it's also an, an older view. I do think there was... Well, a Andrew, yeah. just sorry to interrupt, but how would you characterize the strident Roman Catholic voices? As I've heard it, there's, you know... <sighs> The tradition really is something, it's, it's like a well. Um, there actually is a, a, a book that looked at this in the case of papal infallibility, um, where uh, there was a big shift in the 13th, apparently St. Francis, this is kind of outside of my area, but he, he kind of kicked off a, a very strange moment in the church uh, with some apocalypticism and uh views about the ideal Christian life, um, as well as uh, sort of influencing these questions of doctrine and church politics. Not him directly so much as some of his, his, his uh, followers. Um, and there it was really strictly said that whereas before, I mean, the canon lawyers had been pretty um, uh, uniform up to this point and had said, no, kind of like how Dom is arguing. We, we need to mostly go back to uh, scripture. Like, scripture really is the only source. If you're going to make something an article of faith, you have to ground it in scripture. Um, it's just, there's no bones about it. When you got to the question of, so you have these beliefs about Francis and apocalypticism that are in the air, um, this, this caused some, some problems. And in order to try to, because they could, but they couldn't ground this stuff very well in, in scripture, right? And so they started appealing to tradition as a separate source. Whereas before, again, if you're reading Irenaeus, it seems like it's much more of a, a defensive mechanism, if anything, it, it keeps the bounds, draws the lines, and like what interpretation, what doctrine are supposed to be, and so um, I, I think it's good that Dom. That's what changed then, as I understand, and, and as I read the reformers, what I think they're saying is that we need to go back to the older view with uh, 
Prima Scriptura is actually going back to this one source theory rather than the dual source theory of scripture and tradition. Um, so, so that's one thing. I think Irenaeus would be somewhat uh, hesitant about the way Dom approaches the allegorical readings that he, say for Mary or some of these things. Um, I think he would certainly prefer it um, to some of the, the, the later approaches, the, again, those sort of more strident um, Roman Catholic voices that I alluded to. Um, but the, the thing is, the Gnostics, all, the Valentinians also a, appeal to scripture, right? They play lots of games, and Irenaeus is pretty clear. And one of the games they play is trying to read things in a clever allegorical way. I'm not, again, I'm not trying to impute you know, bad motives or you know, intellectual dishonesty to, to Dom at all here. But the, the Gnostics, Irenaeus said, definitely did do this. And I think he would be somewhat nervous about allegorical readings. Um, and the other thing he, he makes clear, I think, about the apostolic tradition is that it also is something that's, as I read it, uh, sort of prima facie, that it, it, on the first showing, if you want to know what the apostolic tradition is, you can find it in any of the churches, anywhere. You can ask the bishops, you can ask the presbyters. So that I don't know that he could say there actually are these other sources out there that could then later be used as the basis of something that would be later called revealed truth to the church. Now, if you were to say, again, something like you know, Origen or Clement, that here is this extra idea, say, about Mary or purgatory or whatever, I think he would say, okay, fine. But as long as you don't raise that to the level of questions about the resurrection or about the virgin birth or about the fact that actually there is a good creator god who created the universe and all you know, the, the sort of the genesis story um as long as you don't mess with anything that's that fundamental or try to raise it to that level i think he would be more or less okay with that um i guess when, it, when you say raise it to that level do you mean say that it has the same authoritative weight yes i would say that yeah I think that would make him, which, I mean, this, this is where it's hard, right? Because this is what defines different confessional traditions against one another. Um, mm -hmm. And so, again, the more strident voices that I've heard would say, I mean, some of the really, really strident voices, like some of the ones we've heard, like at, at Hills, the, some of the people I would have known at Hillsdale would say, like, yeah, even to be saved, you have to believe in some of this stuff about, you know, Mary or purgatory or whatever. Um, which, I mean... I don't know what Don thinks, but I, I personally find that kind of noxious. Um, and even the slightly softer um, Roman Catholic voices that I've known would say, really, you're supposed to believe this, even if it's not necessarily um, like what decides whether you get into heaven or not. Um, and I think that sort of thinking would make Irenaeus very uncomfortable um, because that sort of stuff is supposed to already be all out there for everybody to see. Um, it should, should the all stuff be that out. you're really supposed to believe yes. should be in Scripture and, and, pretty and, clearly. Right, and should all be out there. The on way the, that predestination is. Yes, precisely. <laughs> it should all be out there <laughs> on the table already, and there shouldn't be much of a question about uh, what the essential doctrines that everybody's supposed to believe are. And these they really should be pretty obvious, I think, in Scripture, even if there is space, yes, for development and for expounding upon the sort of allegorical ideas that, that, that Dom is uh, finding, say, in the Old Testament, um, of which there are certainly, you know, types and uh, allegories to be un unpacked there. I think he would definitely agree with that. But, um, yeah, some, some of the stuff, I, I, and I realize Dom is, is sort of... Um, um, 
sorting through some of this right now, but I, my impression is that the Irenaeus probably again would be a little, a little nervous about some of this. Um, that's, I mean, that's a long answer, so I'll pause there. Yeah, so I would say that Andrew's right uh, to raise some questions here. Um, I think that, again, I think we're going, um, we're moving quite smoothly from Irenaeus to our own thoughts, back to Irenaeus, to modern church in general, back to our own thoughts. Um, and so, like, to be clear, like, you know, a lot of the things I say are my thoughts and not necessarily what I would say. This is what Irenaeus would be great with. Um, this is what he would be comfortable with. Uh, one thing I will say, though, is I'm not sure Irenaeus is necessarily suspicious or um, nervous about giving um, somewhat creative uh, typological readings of the Old Testament. Um, I think one of the more interesting examples and against heresies is his reading of the incest of Lot being a prefiguring of the church of the Jews and the Gentiles um, from his two daughters, uh, which is do with that what you will. Um, it's, it's an interesting <laughs> reading, to say right. the least. Um, I, I'm not necessarily convinced that Irenaeus would be wary of those things. Um, I think what he would say, though, is that, um, well, actually, I'm not going to do that. That's not a fun game to play. I'm not going to put words in his mouth. Um, but what I would say, um, commenting on this, is that, uh, again, this is where I think we're inevitably going to run into where we just, what we can't figure out now, what we will inevitably disagree with, right, is that I believe that, according to Irenaeus, that if you read scripture, you will wind up in the church with these teachers, right? And these are the teachers who will teach you the truth without harm. And for him, that truth is an exposition of scripture, yes. Uh, but say these... Um, teachers are teaching, you know, things that fit in with the history of scripture, don't contradict it, don't necessarily come straight from the text, you know, are still faithful to what has been revealed, and these are the teachers you're with because of what you've been shown in scripture. Um, I think that that's, that's, that's where I am with these teachings from the Catholic Church, right? I believe that on account of my reading of scripture, I believe what the Catholic Church teaches, and so if the Catholic Church teaches this as revealed by God, then I believe that it's revealed by God. Um, and so I would say that, you know, what the Catholic Church holds up for me to believe with religious assent, I believe with religious assent, um, but that on my reading of Scripture, the Catholic Church is the place where I would be. Um, so I, I can't... I can't say, okay, Scripture has gotten me this far, and the Catholic Church also teaches this, but I haven't gotten this out of Scripture, so I'm going to leave this aside, simply because if I'm playing Irenaeus' game, right, and these are the guys who teach without danger, then if I believe that these are the teachers I'm led to, then how can I turn away from them on this point if it's still faithful to the Scriptures, whereas I would think that the Valentinians and others who aren't a part of the Church, right, aren't with the authoritative teachers, you know, whatever they're doing, right? It's something disconnected, and that's one of the red flags, right? Uh, so I, I think there are multiple levels going on here, right? We can refute them from the scriptures, but we can also witness that they're not with the church, and if they're not with the church, they're probably not reading it right. Um, so there's, I think there's um, several levels going on here, and I think you're right, though, to say that Irenaeus doesn't give us a clean answer or doesn't even maybe give us the answer that we might want with regard to later developments or later declarations. Um, but again, there's Irenaeus and then there's the church, you know, um, I'm not going to 
um, judge the entire church by St. Irenaeus um, right, necessarily. Right. And I'm not necessarily going to read St. Irenaeus in a way that I can use him to judge the rest of the church. Uh, so that's kind of where the limits of trying to engage with a single author take me. Um, that and the fact that, you know, I have commitments, right? Like I determined that these are the teachers who are teaching authoritatively, so I'm going to listen to them. Right. So I have uh, two more big things I want to hit, at least. Um, one question for you, Dom, and then maybe after that I have a point that I want to sort of make and bring up and then hear your guys' perspective on it. Um, <clears throat> my question, Dom, is what is authoritative teaching? Um, if you're, I, I assume, well, okay, just to take an extreme example, your Roman Catholic friend could say, I think this doctrine, and you could say, oh, well, I disagree with it. Um, maybe even your priest could. Um, there, are, there, there seem to be priests who have some disagreements with each other, uh, so not everything a priest says is, is authoritative. Um, not everything even a pope says is authoritative unless he says ex cathedra, right? Um, right? What is, how do you know? See, for me, it's easy. If you ask me, you know, what do you believe is absolutely authoritative? I can tell you, well, I've got the, you know, 66 books of scripture. And then if you wanted to ask me, what do I think is a reliable source, but maybe not authoritative, I would say, oh, well, here are some teachers I generally trust. Um, I, I might point to Augustine. I might point to Wayne Grudem. I don't know. Um, and I would probably say, you know, with all of these, anybody I would point to, I would say, I don't agree with him on everything, but maybe I agree with sort of the general thrust of what he says. Um, but, but if you wanted to know what's absolutely authoritative, what do I have to believe, I would point to the 66 books of Scripture. What would you point to? if, Like, what's non-negotiable for you? You said you have commitments. Is it possible to sum up what those commitments are? Like, what are the things that you have to believe? Uh, so that's tricky because... Um... <laughs> So really, there are defined teachings of the Catholic Church, right? Like I have my catechisms, I have, um, you know, I definitely have declarations, the declarations are very clear, and I have the scriptures, obviously I have the scriptures. Um, uh, so we would point to those, um, but again, the discussion of authority within the Catholic Church is something that's still live, and it goes um into many finer details but the things that must be believed are summarized in the catechisms of the church um, and are identified as such and um uh, when you say the catechism sorry. do you mean the one i think pope john paul published a catechism in 1992 is that is that the one you're talking about yes yeah, so i'm referring to that and i'm referring i mean there are older ones right there's one that's put out by trent um there are others um uh, that came out at various times, and I guess another important point to realize about the catechism, though, there's also varying degrees of authority within the catechism um, in terms of what it says and where it comes from, because the catechism is a book simply for teaching. It's not a book for, you know, establishing hard and fast um, baseline, but um, so for things like social doctrine and the newer catechism, right, aren't necessarily you have to believe everything we say about social doctrine with religious assent or else you're not an Orthodox Catholic. Um, but, you know, as far as the things that we must believe with regard to what we believe to be revealed, yes, it's, it's all there. Um, but we have declarations, we have... Um, By declarations, you mean what the Council says? Like, I mean, yeah, conciliar declarations, papal declarations, um, 
So there are collections of those too, um, like uh, stigmatic canons out of councils, declarations of popes. Um, so we have those. Um, and then it's also just a lot of discussion from um, accepted authorities in the church. Uh, this is why the Summa is so huge for so many people, right? It's, it's just a great authority because Thomas has opinions about just about everything. But um, that one's not infallible, right? Right, he's not infallible. Uh, so as far as your question as to what is infallibly known, um, I, it, it's, again, you'd have to ask the church. <laughs> this is, this who, is who, who do I ask? If, if I wanted to ask the church, who would I ask? So you would go, ideally you would go to a priest, um, and you could discuss it with a priest. Um, you would have, I mean, I would say you'd also have the scriptures, um, but the priests are all, you know, they're all taught these things and they all teach these things. Um, this is what they do, right? Um, so they would be the ones to go to. And then, um, I'm sorry, I'm not doing a great job answering this. It's I'm just kind of blanking right now. Um, yeah. But, which is so, uh, yeah, kind of I the guess, point I guess of your question, question right? <laughs> but, and maybe maybe my question isn't fair or isn't, isn't easy to answer or whatever. But I guess it's basically if I were to say, you know what, I think I believe this Roman Catholic stuff. Like, I believe that Mary's, you know, sinless, always a virgin. I believe in, um, you know, the Roman Catholic view of justification. But I, I just really can't get behind purgatory. Or maybe I believe in purgatory, but I just really can't get behind the idea that, uh, you know, the assumption of Mary happened. Or, or I, you know, just pick some Roman Catholic doctrine. I really can't get behind the idea that the death penalty is immoral in all cases. Um which I think they just recently like came out with that, uh, you know, whatever. How do, how do I know, like, can I be Catholic? You know, like if I said, I, I, I believe all the Catholic stuff, but I just really can't get behind Jesus rising from the dead. Literally. I think it is more figurative. You'd, no, you're not a Christian, right? That would be the answer. <laughs> right. yeah, um, absolutely. And, but, but if I were to say like any of those other things, how do I know like what's authoritative and what's not? I think you would look at scripture, you would look at the official declarations of councils, you would look at the official declarations of popes, I think that's where you would start, right? Those are the official teachings of things that have been declared and defined as being revealed. Um, after that, then you would have your catechisms, which summarize those things. Um, and so that's where you would find your discussion of the death penalty. That's where that happened. So that was a modification of the paragraph in the catechism on the death penalty that happened, what, a year or so ago, a year and a half ago, half a year ago, mm -hmm. something like that. Um, and so that would be something where um, there's actually a lot of discussion. And so this is actually probably a pretty good example of where the um, the authority question within Catholicism rises because you'd have St. Paul and Romans saying, you know, it's not for nothing that the powers of the world wield the sword. They wield it as avengers of right for God's sake, right? They have it on loan from God. Um, right. So you'd have people saying, well, here's Romans saying that the state has the power of the sword and it's for a good cause and it's, you know, God gave it to them. So what do we make of that? Uh, so there's been all kinds of picking apart of the text of the new paragraph in the catechism there's been going back to other statements of popes on the death penalty and this that and the other uh, trying to resolve you know how do we understand this if we have so many other 
statements from authoritative sources on this. You know, how do we understand what has been said? Uh, so this is um, another discussion that's going on within Catholicism, right? Um, if we say that the state does legitimately have the power of the sword, does that mean that we need to believe that the state ought to use it the way that it uses it now? Or does the modern situation change that? Or how, mm -hmm. how do we understand what St. Paul is saying? So th these are all live discussions, right? But things like the natures of Christ, where a council has come out and declared, and we have conciliar decrees on these things, right? That's, that's simply non-negotiable. Um, that's something that has been defined as revealed. And so we do have those sources, and those sources have been cataloged for us. Um, you can you know, go find them. They, they think there are volumes of them that have been put together for the sake of, you know, if you want to see every decree that's been made, here they are. Uh, but I think... So, know, so I can say, I can say, I think that this update to the catechism is just wrong. But I can't say, I think this conciliar, conciliar decree is just wrong. Right, if the council, so, uh, so, um, right, so if the council of Trent issues an anathema, right, like, I can't just say, no, I disagree with that, because that's, I believe that the Holy Spirit guided Trent, and Trent speaking as a council, intending to make a decree on something binding under pain of, you know, leaving Orthodox faith, defines this as an anathematized belief, then I can't cross that. But the death penalty being a question, I mean, even before this modification, right, being a question of social doctrine, of political prudence, of the application of something that, you know, we know in principle to be revealed, um, but then working our ways into our situation with our governments and this, that, and the other, right? Um, there isn't just a simple answer to that, right? I can't just say, well, St. Paul said that the state has the power of the sword, therefore the death penalty should be used and used often, right? It, it, it doesn't follow. Um, mm -hmm. So a stance on that question, it's not a question of revelation in that sense. I mean, maybe, you know, in principle, you could say, yes, that, you know, I can't just say it's illegitimate for governments to have power or physical coercion over people because St. Paul says, oh, it is legitimate and God made it that way. You know, maybe that would be off to the extreme where now I really am butting up against not a decree, but against scripture, right? Um, but insofar as... But isn't it, isn't it the other way that they're trying to do right now? Like, they're they're trying to say that the absolute authority of the Roman Catholic Church, which is on level with Scripture, says the death penalty is wrong in all circumstances and always has been. So I don't think that that's what they're saying. Uh, I think that... Okay, okay. Um, so this is, this is the tricky thing, right? This is the question outside of these clear decrees of how we understand these things. And this is where a lot of the parsing of the language of the paragraph comes out. Um, and I don't really want to dig too much into that. But again, sure. on these sorts of questions, we understand the Church is being... So um, here I'm going to use the same word but with a different meaning. It's not binding, but it's authoritative. So we don't have to assent to it as if it's a matter of the faith, but we should at least consider it as coming from a teacher who has been given a gift of, you know, some amount of teaching wisdom, while maybe not necessarily perfect authority on this question. Right, um, right. And so, you know, my understanding before the modification was the stance of the church is it's legitimate, but we don't want to use it if we don't have to, because, you know, it's a fearsome thing to wield the power of God, right? And if you don't do it rightly, we see what happens in Scripture to the guys who are appointed and anointed by God and don't wield his power rightly, right? Like, we know what happens with Saul, you know, um, it's not a good thing. And maybe if 
we have a means to avoiding, you know, putting at risk a human lives and b our own souls and exercising this power. Maybe it would be better acknowledging its legitimacy and its legitimate use to shy away from using it so much or to use it in very restricted cases. And that would be my impression of what it was before the change. Um, and my impression of the change read as a more conservative change is we're just going to take a very strong statement and say we're we acknowledge its legitimacy but we don't want to use it hardly ever um, and i don't and i don't think that the reasoning in the paragraph necessarily lines up with mine but that's where i would say okay well i'm free to wrestle with this this isn't something that is a matter of the faith it's not a matter of revelation this is something i can at least engage as long as i'm not just out in the streets, you know, denouncing the Pope or whatever. Mm -hmm. So I hope okay. that helps. <laughs> um, so, so it's, yeah, so it sounds like you're saying mainly the Bible and, in, uh, and uh, the statements of councils are, are the things that, that are, are really like, you can't you can't go against this. Yeah. So the Bible, the statements of councils, and the declarations of the popes, um, okay. I think, would be okay. like the big three things for the definitive. Hey, Daniel, you know, this oh, is what you sorry. can't cross. But there are you know there are plenty of other things that are authoritative opinions within the tradition that aren't at that level, but you know, right, are held right. because of where they come from, and that's where we get into these discussions. Sure. Okay. Okay. Good. Daniel, can I jump in any... for a second? Yeah, yeah. Okay. It's it's interesting. Um, again, I appreciate Dom's Dom's honesty here that there's some tricky things to be unpacked, as there always is. I think if I were to make a point, though, um, it, it seems to me that this is a this is a very complicated system in a lot of ways, with actually quite a bit of ambiguity. So that even if we were to take those three categories, the Bible, um, which often the more polemical voices uh, in Roman Catholic history would say you can't really make sense of the Bible for yourself, and I don't think Dom is saying that, but that's been said. Um, I have you know friends who would make that claim that you know, really you can't make a whole lot of sense without an interpreter. Um, if you were to look, yeah, at it the, sounds like what Dom is saying is you absolutely can. Yes. You're just not likely to get yes. it completely right, and so yes. isn't it better to have somebody who already has right? Right. And then if you were to take the declarations of the popes and the councils, and then you have the question of okay, well, which declaration of the popes and which decorate which councils um, there's a famous does the pope have to ratify the decision of councils what about if, what if the council I mean Luther pointed this out right that the, the popes and the councils have often disagreed with each other councils Andrew you, you cut out for just a second at least for yeah. me sorry sorry, sorry. Yeah. where did I cut out uh, something about what if the council oh sorry okay so you mean the so what if a council disagrees with a pope, or what if a pope disagrees with a council, the, the, and vice versa? Um, the councils disagree with other councils, and the popes disagree with, with popes. In, in papal statements, you, you can find disagreements between, say, I think Vatican II and uh, a lot of medieval statements about, say, the authority of the pope. Um, I, I mean, a good one would be something like Lateran IV, where uh, the... Um, there's instruction that uh, Jews have to wear um, the Star of David or wear a specific patch that was not a Nazi invention, um, and that was ratified by by council. And I, and I assume that 
we, there's just no way, shape, or form that any council today. I, I, again, I think I think Vatican II actually like walked this reasoning back completely, and so it, I would just point out that it, it is it is complicated in a way that I think going back to Irenaeus, I don't think he sees this much ambiguity. Um, and I understand that like Dom has like commitments, and I and I don't want to like sort oh, of. Oh, you, you you cut out again. You keep <laughs> going back to Irenaeus. <laughs> going back it's to all Irene... the good parts too. Like, yeah. You get going. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Irenaeus, I, I think he's. It is it is simpler for Irenaeus than um, e- even like a, a good faith modern Roman Catholic model um, of how we can sort these things out. Because I think what it a lot a lot of this does is it kicks it down, you know, the the road um, about who gets to decide which texts, when and where. There's just a lot of ambiguity I think in in this kind of system that I I just don't read in in Irenaeus. And of course he's not the end-all be-all, um, though he, I just see him again as being an important historical source in you know, that that early there were these, again, he seems to think it's mostly pretty clear, right, that it, it takes, remember he's writing a, a, a mostly a polemical account that this stuff is, you almost have to have bad faith, right, to misunderstand some of this stuff. Um, so, again, I don't want to start like <laughs> prosecuting the whole 500 years of the Reformation oh, no. and, and all that. I, I don't want it either. But <laughs> whatever, whatever you didn't want to do. Um, I think it, I, again, I appreciate Dom's honesty. I, I just wonder again, is, is, uh, I think Irenaeus might be doing something different. And there's a contrast there. Um, I think there's a little bit of a contrast. I just wanted to highlight that. Yeah. I, I think, um, that there's, um, a couple different questions floating around, right? Um, one is, how would I understand things? Another is, how does Irenaeus understand things? Another is, where can I go to find exactly what the modern Catholic Church would teach spelled out for me, right? Um, and I think part of what Irenaeus says is that these things are pretty open as they're taught and lived within the church. Um, you can go to the church and you can find them, uh, which I would think, I would say is true of the modern Catholic Church, too. You can go to the church and you will find these things practiced, you will find these things taught. Um, it's not that they're hidden, it's just that if you want to pin them down in this way, right, this is part of what I was saying earlier, right, where I think that Catholics can actually re-examine a lot of what we believe and maybe find firmer footing for them than maybe Oops, commonly Dom, appreciated as being Dom, there. You cut out can there. actually come back and say and say, like, okay, maybe I don't have to point you to this, that, the other place to understand this. I can just discuss the scriptures with you, right? And it becomes less complicated if I re-examine it in that light, uh, which is, you know, part of what personally I'm doing right now in light of reading Irenaeus. Right. Uh, right. And so I, I think I think there's a disconnect between trying to prove out, you know, where is the definitive statement of this doctrine and where can I find it? practiced and taught and lived right mm-hmm. and i would say yeah it's actually still pretty open uh you can be you know again like you can be a nod not again but you can be a catholic in a catholic church and hold the catholic faith and hold it pretty completely without ever having dug into the library of whatever or read all the right. catechisms right. or however because it's, it's not hidden from you right? right in the same way um so it's it's not simple in the sense of where do I dig in to find a statement that someone would say, this is the authoritative statement on this. But I do think that there is still a certain form of that simplicity that exists in the church. I think he cut out again. 
So there's one more uh, point that I wanted to bring up and hear both of your thoughts on, and that has to do with the sort of the nature of what tradition is. So my thesis, you know, and, and I am Protestant, so that influences this, of course, but my, my thesis that I want to sort of argue for is that tradition cannot be absolutely authoritative because tradition derives its authority from the fact that it holds itself to a higher standard. And what I mean by that is, for example, you know, you can take all kinds of traditions. So uh, in traditions of how we interpret scripture, traditions of how we interpret the Constitution, um, traditions of how we barbecue pork, you know, any, any kind of tradition you want. It, it derives its authority from the fact that it's holding itself to a higher standard you know, traditions of mathematical or scientific inquiry, same thing, that that you know that the way that, you know, if you have a tradition and, and somebody says, "My, we've been barbecuing pork this way for a thousand years, you know that that's a good way of barbecuing pork, not because it's impossible for it to change and it's absolutely authoritative, but because you know that if there could, if an improvement could be made, it already has been made. And so the fact that something is holding itself to a standard higher than itself allows for a, a tradition to develop to the point where it does have a very, very strong, compelling authority. And you can say the same about tradition of, of mathematical or scientific inquiry, that we know that what, like, the general body of scientific knowledge that we have today is reliable because we know that if any of it were imperfect, somebody would have fixed it. You know, somebody would have found that, and but but in order to have that, you have to have the ability to say, oh, this little aspect of tradition is actually wrong. And occasionally, within science and within medicine and within barbecue, you know, that sort of thing does happen. Um, you know, constitutional interpretation. We've sort of seen what happens when you say that the tradition itself is an absolute authority. You get the, I think it was the, the Warren Quarter or, or whatever, where you start sort of spiraling into these made-up rights, these emanations from penumbras, right, right. and then that sort of culminates in Roe v. Wade, and then from Roe v. Wade, we, we see that as authoritative with you know without even ever talking about what the backing is, because there actually is no backing. Um, it, it's a horribly written even if you're even if you're radically pro-choice, it, it, I think you have to agree it's a horribly written decision. If you if you want to maintain any semblance of it coming from the Constitution, but then once you have that, then that becomes authoritative, and you get you know all these decisions that build on it, and you have this whole string of things that are are you know completely antithetical to what the Constitution is actually saying, and that's sort of the result of what happens when tradition itself becomes as absolute as the thing it's supposed to be uh, expounding on. So I guess the way I see it, the Roman Catholic Church has sort of done something like that, and it's horribly unfair of me to, to in any way compare the Roman Catholic Church to anything related to Roe v. Wade because Roman Catholics are even better than Protestants at, at being pro-life, and that's one of the things I respect Roman Catholics for most. Um but, but in the sense that I think 
when you see, and I think that I think Vatican II explicitly lays out that tradition is absolutely authoritative on the level of Scripture. And I haven't read the thing, so I could be wrong, but that's what I've heard multiple people say that Vatican II says anyway. Um, and, and that sort of attitude had been there for many years before Vatican II, and we've seen doctrines that look, at least to a Protestant, look more and more foreign to Scripture. Um, whereas back, you know, when we have Irenaeus, back when, you know, Irenaeus's view was that tradition exists to interpret Scripture, and to the extent the tradition is trying to interpret Scripture, I think you're right, and Irenaeus is right, that we can get, you know, over time, a very, very strong authority built up, but only to the extent that tradition sees itself as being held to a higher standard than itself. So, um, what do you guys think about that? Dom, you want to start this? I'll, uh, I'll let you go first. Okay. I talk a lot lately. Uh, I agree that tradition has. I, I make, it was a long question, so I want to make sure I try to get at the. the it was a very long here. question. So, yes. I think certainly traditions have. Are you sort of asking like what what is the core of tradition, or you're asking me like what is the starting point? Is that sort of the question? I guess what I'm what I'm saying is, I think that a tradition that is as author that that is absolutely authoritative is an oxymoron right, right. And, and it actually ceases to be a tradition right and, and as a as a you know protestant you know this would be terribly you know you you probably wouldn't like this dom and i'm sorry um right. but if i had to give a name to a tradition that that ceases to be a tradition by seeing itself as authoritative you know that's a tradition gone wrong I might give like use the word dogma to describe what I see as a tradition gone wrong, a tradition that sees itself as absolutely authoritative and sort of the moment a tradition turns into a dogma, it is likely to spiral out of control yeah. and become unrecognizable, as we've seen with certain cases of, you know, the Supreme Court. Right. And right. and as as a Protestant I would argue, as we've seen with the Roman Catholic Church since uh, uh, you know, sometime before the Reformation. Sorry, you cut out there right at the end. Uh, I said, as as we've seen with uh, the Supreme Court interpreting law, in certain cases anyway, certain types of cases, and as we've seen with, as a Protestant, I think, as we've seen with the Roman Catholic Church since shortly before the Reformation, or, or sometime before the Reformation anyway. Yeah, okay. So I, I think that... I think that there is a place. So here, here's the, the thing: like, if you're going to have a Protestant constitution of all of this, you're going to still, I think, run into kind of the same problem, right? Uh, where, where does Scripture come from? Who gets to decide what Scripture is? Who decides sets the canon? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. These ambiguities don't really go away; they, they're still there. Um, and this is where I see someone like uh, Eusebius being helpful, who, who actually is able to hold like a hierarchy of, of views and be relaxed about ones that he knows don't go straight to the heart of the faith. As far as that, that's a much longer story. Um, as far as you know, how do we solve that problem? Um, I, I am inclined to agree that 
Roman Catholicism. Oh, no, you've cut out. Now you've cut out. No, you said, no, how do no, we... no, 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 no. Am I back? Can you hear me again? Yeah, you're okay. back. You, you were saying, how do we solve something? How do, how do we solve the problem? I, I think there is... You just have to, I think, at this point, maybe acknowledge that there's a degree of ambiguity that we just can't shake out of the system totally. Um, and that that's okay, uh, as long as it's ambiguity about... Uh, the right sort of things, um, and that. I mean, here's the thing: like, even with scripture, it's really not like scripture does not have its own authority, like on its own as like a separate entity. It gets its authority from God, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Through the you know, all authority on heaven and earth belongs to the Lord. Um, he claims that at the end of, of Matthew, and I see the scriptural authority as being an extension of that. Um, and I, I'd imagine you know. Dom would see tradition as being another extension of that, um, uh, uh, or at least the Catholic Church as an institution and its teachings as he sees them. Um, so, but yes, I think you're right. There, there is a place where, where tradition has to ultimately fall back on something. And for me, it's the resurrection, right? There is a historical reality. At the very beginning of this, we were talking about flesh and blood lived realities. And I think Paul sees this as, you know, this is the thing that I've passed on to you, the tradition of, of first importance, uh, that Christ rose from the dead according to the scriptures, right? And, and goes on and on and on. And that's, that I think is the, the core thing. Ultimately, we believe that, um, that there was a, you know, flesh and blood reality um, of Jesus being raised from the dead. And again, I think, I think Irenaeus would, would agree with that. And that confirmed who Jesus was and that he had God's stamp of approval and that he had this, this authority. Um, again, as Paul says later on, like if that doesn't actually happen, then you know what's the point of all of this? Um, and I think that's where this tradition gets its start from. If I'm going to like put a bedrock view where all of this stuff starts, um, that's what I'm going to you know probably base this on. And I, I think Paul would probably agree with that. Um, and I just I is that kind of getting at the question you're asking uh, uh, remotely? I, I think so. So you're, you're still cutting out a little bit, which is sad because you're probably saying great stuff. Um, I, I know you are when you're not cutting out, but um, it sounds like you're saying that maybe the the sort of higher standard that tradition needs to hold itself to isn't even scripture, but the absolute standard is God. And even maybe our sort of coming up with a table of contents is part of that tradition that needs to hold itself to a standard of um, the truth that is from God. Yes, and, that... and a historical reality. I, I think there really is, I think the bedrock yeah. of our faith is a true historical reality. It's not something that's abstract. So that if you, again, believe in you know who this Jesus of Nazareth guy was, and you believe in his resurrection, um then I mean, and there, there's like there, we can actually have a historical argument about that. Um, it, it's a thing that actually happened in, in space and time, and I think that's the foundation of all of this stuff. Um, anyway, I've, I've rambled, <laughs> but Dom. Yeah. So um, I, I think again, this is just going to be a difficult one to answer because again, we're talking about comparing tradition with something else, right? Um, and I guess just a point on Vatican II, because you mentioned Vatican II. Vatican II was very careful um, to outline 
tradition and scripture as being very closely united. Um, the term the deposit of faith is what's often invoked in the Catholic Church to describe um, the single deliverance of revelation to the church, um, primarily in the scriptures and in the traditions. Um, and the relationship between those two is actually really difficult just to lay out clearly. Um, but what Vatican II will say is that um, you know, the scriptures themselves are written within the context of a tradition, which then handed on to the church through the oral teaching, and then even in the scriptures itself, right, the written teaching of the apostles allows us to continue to interpret the scriptures rightly for the sake of the faithful. Um, so, um, and so in a certain sense, yes, I mean, I would agree that, you know, tradition is, um, has a higher standard in the sense that I think like what Andrew was saying, right, it's, it's also a part of what God has delivered to us. Uh, I'm not sure, again, I'm willing to compare it to scripture because it's just so closely related to it, right? Um, and depending on how you read scripture, you know, what you might believe about the extent of what scripture can tell us might influence your belief on um, how you understand that interplay with that authority. Uh, I hesitate to say that tradition is absolute just because there isn't, again, there's no, there's no tradition at least that I see in the Catholic Church where I would say there is no connection to Scripture there. There's nothing, there's not even a point of contact, right? Um, so to try to relate them that way is rather difficult um, insofar as, say, I guess pulling a little bit on Irenaeus to say, like, as it has been handed down to us by a succession of bishops, um, Yes, I would say it has an authority, not simply because it's been handed on, but because also its origin is so bound up with the scriptures and the origin of the scriptures that, um, sorry, um, that, yeah, I can't um, pull it apart that way, uh, but it has its authority with the scriptures, I guess I would say, not that it's absolute without them, but that it's authoritative with them. Uh, not in the sense that there will ever be a butting up against them where there would have to be a clash. And I have to say, oh, this one's first, right? Because they're both part of one faith that's delivered from one God. Uh, so it, it's a tricky question to try to answer on those terms, I guess. Right. And I certainly don't think, you know, the, if somebody says that tradition and scripture are equally authoritative, I think, well, what if they contradict is, is a horrible our counter argument to that because um you know i think that habakkuk and nehemiah are equally authoritative and if you say what if they contradict i would say well i don't think they do right so, um, <laughs> right so and and yeah so so you're saying essentially essentially that right that they that they don't contradict Right, I would say they don't, and I mean, if we believe the claim of a divine gift to the teachers of the church and the divine guidance of the church, then they can't, right? Mm -hmm. And they won't. Um, right. Okay, um, anything else we want to address? We're, we're now over two hours, so congratulations, guys. <laughs> Thank you for deep into the weeds. both hanging with me for so long. It's been great. Right. Um, I'm I'm pretty good. I think that was um, 
This is good. <laughs> it's nice <laughs> to have a conversation with old Hillsdale people. Um, in a yeah. world that looks at this actually like it's all bananas, <laughs> um, <laughs> which I kind of live in every day, um, this is this is refreshing. So I appreciate you guys having the conversation with me. Yeah, I'm really glad that uh, you asked me to do this, Daniel. I'm glad that you did it, Andrew. This has been a lot of fun. And sort of like what Andrew was saying before, it's nice to have discussions with Hillsdale people that maybe don't have the same sort of tone that the discussions we had at Hillsdale might have. Yes. yes. <laughs> right. This has been well, this has been a lot more informative and a lot more fun uh, to kind of engage with somebody uh, without necessarily having a totally polemical intent myself. Right. <laughs> so right. That's nice. Well, Dom, you're somebody that I've I've always sort of seen, at, and I guess both both of you guys, I, I probably know better from Facebook than from actual uh, <laughs> being being good <laughs> friends with you at Hillsdale. Although both both of you were, you know, I, I think I probably knew Dom a little bit more, but but still, uh, I think we were in one class um, together. I think that yeah, that yeah, I remember. Is that right? Yes, yes, that's right. I didn't that's enjoy right. that um, class. <laughs> <laughs> no, <laughs> no, but that's a different story, a different podcast when we turn to politics. <laughs> oh yes, yes. Um, no, I, I I probably would mostly agree with you about that class, and uh, and well, I don't want to get too much into that right now, but um, yeah, no, I. I I think it's great we've been able to have this conversation. And what I was going to say is, Dom, you're somebody that I've always kind of thought you're the type of person I want to have this conversation with. Um, you're somebody I, obviously, I'm Protestant, you're Roman Catholic, but you're one of the most, uh, one of the least polemical and most, like, productive discussions that that I've had or, or witnessed have have involved you, and and so I really appreciate that. And I've wanted to have you on this podcast for a long time. Uh, can, can I um, can I ask one quick question t- toward Dom yeah. here? Um, this is related to what you're just saying. Dom, do you do you find because because I this is my experience, uh, and this has been true in Hillsdale and outside and social media and, and and so on and so forth. But I have found, I'm sure this is true, you know, in the other direction as well. But that that uh, that people who were born and raised as Roman Catholic are much more relaxed about this than <laughs> many of the people who I found to convert. Do you find that to be true as well, or is that just because I'm like arguing with them? <laughs> I, I think it depends on what circles you run in, uh, just because the Catholic community is just so big uh, that there are lots of intra-Catholic discussions that get pretty heated, um, so they may not be as anxious about settling questions about the authority of tradition as they are about what that tradition says we should be doing in X, Y, and Z capacity or in X, Y, and Z setting, Um, but they exist, Um, but I do think that um, outside of those communities where you encounter those discussions as much yes a lot a lot of the born and raised catholics tend to be more relaxed um with their faith um and i'm i guess i'll ask you in response to that what do you mean by relaxed many of the converts uh, i'm thinking of you know friends and acquaintances uh are much more they get much more angry um when these discussions I, I don't think we could I would have been much more nervous having this conversation with one of them whereas I know you like as Daniel says you've got you've got a good reputation and I you know, trust you to be reasonable and you know uh, 
pretty non-polemical about this. I have, not to say that converts can't do that, but I have had a lot of experiences where there just seems, maybe it's just like, you know, the convert's zeal, um, but I've just noticed that people who are raised Catholic, even if they're serious, uh, are, are just a little bit more, again, relaxed in that sense. Yeah, There's also sort so. of an idea that that you just feel if you're a if you're a Protestant at Hillsdale, you just sort of feel this idea that if you're a really smart intellectual, you're going to become Roman yes. Catholic. Yes. Um, and, and there's so sort of like a snobby condescension and among some, yeah, yeah, some. Uh, and, well, I mean, if you really are smart, <laughs> <laughs> you should be able to find all of these things in Scripture. Right. Um, Right, but but anyway, anyway, I just wanted to say thank you, Dom. I appreciate you, and I've wanted to have you on here for a long time, and uh, I've been sort of waiting for an opportunity to invite you. Like, I don't know, am I worthy to invite Dom? But then when the latest <laughs> conversation with Andrew came, it's like, okay, well, I've at least got Andrew, so like, uh, you know, he can he can be the one who's you know worthy, and I'll just like host the two of them <laughs> talking about a church father whose name That's I can't great. even pronounce. Um, so anyway, thank you both guys for joining me. And uh, if you've been listening, uh, then I'm very impressed with you. Um, I do this largely just because it's so much fun. Um, and if somebody wants to listen, we did have at least one listener hanging in for about half the time. So uh, that's a good sign. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for thank you for joining us. And please subscribe by sending me an email or going to my website and subscribing through there or subscribing on Spotify, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, whatever your whatever your thing is, and please join us next time.